your work life, all of our work lives. Welcome to Work with Marty Nemco. I was, uh, I guess, lucky enough to get an advanced look at a career cast report that's going to come out next week uh, in which they listed the top majors for finding well-paying employment. And right at the top is finance. Um, according to a survey of recent graduate unemployment rate, uh, it's 97.1% of new graduates are employed if they had a major in finance with a starting salary, and this is nationwide, of 63700 which is no doubt higher in the Bay Area. But such careers, careers in finance, they're viewed by some people as soulless, emblematic of capitalism at its worst. True? And what sorts of careers are there in finance, especially those that would seem to hold potential for benefiting not only investors, but society? With me to untangle all of that is an expert on finance careers, Todd Massage. He is a former finance analyst. He's a go-to guy on Quora regarding finance careers, and he was interviewed on finance in Yahoo Finance. And so now it's my turn to torture him. I mean, excuse me, interview him. Todd Massage, welcome to work with Marty Nemco. Hey, Marty. How you doing? I am well. Thanks for giving me some of your late night. You're back east. Yeah, it's late here, but I'm good to go. Good, you sounded. Okay, so first off, what are the major categories of finance jobs and then the pros and cons of each? Yeah, so I kind of break it down into three different tiers. So we have, you know, tier one, which is, you know, basically what I tell most of my students you want to target. You know, those are the really good analytical kind of hands-on, a lot more interesting types of roles. And then there's tier two, which can kind of get mixed in with tier one sometimes because a lot of students in school or those kind of recently out of school don't really understand what they are. And essentially, I kind of define the tier two roles as kind of more of your, you know, number puncher, kind of typical corporate job where you're not really going very far, you know, you're not doing anything overly interesting, but, you know, it kind of pays the bills. And then, you know, tier three, I kind of primarily define as a lot of the sales jobs out there, which are, you know, heavily commission-based, you know, there's there's not much of kind of a locked-in salary. And I, I tend to tell students to avoid those unless, you know, it's some kind of career they actually do want to go down. Now, of course, you know, number punch, that sounds like something you could do if you were a high school dropout, if you're a data entry or crap like that. Is that what you're talking about in Tier 2? Yeah, pretty much. You know, it's it's kind of like roles, you know, when you're you're in, like, operations and, you know, you're kind of just dealing with, like, back office type of stuff where it's it's nothing too hard, nothing overly crazy. And, like what you know, a lot of the students that I tend to work with that are kind of fresh out of school, you know, and they, and they end up in one of these jobs where they get in it, and at first it seems great, but at the end of the day they're like, okay, I, I don't really like this kind of work. I want something more engaging. You know, I, I want something that's, you know, what kind of drove me into finance in the first place. Sure. So, I mean, here, I mean, a, a degree in finance is no joke. It's kind of hard. So are they really, you know, is that person in Tier 2, now they've got a college degree, they must be pretty desperate to take a job doing data entry or whatever. What are they actually, what's a, you know, a typical hour like in the life of a Tier 2 finance guy? 
It's basically like a typical nine to five corporate job. Doing um, what? You know, at least the majority of them are. You know, maybe when you're when you're talking some of the ones in you know New York or so, or maybe you're working in the back office, you know, operations of a bank, they might be a little longer. But it's normally just kind of like a you know a typical type of job. And you know, the reason why students end up taking jobs like this is they wait too long in school. Where you know they go through school and you know they don't really start looking to to for jobs until like you know, late into their senior year. And a lot of times, you know, there's, there's not much left at that point. And, you know, these companies basically school these students because they need people to fill these spots. Because at the end of the day, once a lot of these students get in jobs like that, they realize they don't want to be there. And then, you know, they want to go somewhere else, which is, you know, why I often recommend my students. And it's really hard to convey, but, you know, you always want to start early. You know, you always want to put your best foot forward as early as can because, you know, as you wait and wait and wait, a lot of the best jobs tend to go away. I mean, specifically, I mean, are you talking about getting internships in junior year? Uh, and, and uh, you know, is that what you're talking about and how to go about doing that? Is, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, so it's it's actually crazy nowadays. So, for example, you know, if, if we're talking like investment banking, which, you know, I basically put at like the top of the tier one types of jobs, like that's what all the students want to go for. And the recruiting for that is absolutely insane nowadays. So, for example, probably around, you know, this upcoming February or so, they will, the big banks will start recruiting for investment banking internships for next summer. So pretty much almost a year and a half in advance wow. is how early they start for those types of jobs because they're just so overly competitive. And if you haven't gone to Harvard, Stanford, Berkeley, etc., are you doomed? I mean, if it's no, that competitive. you're not doomed, but it, it makes it a lot harder. When you're at an Ivy League school, they basically hand you those interviews on a platter. But, you know, when you're at a non-target school or like a state school, which is, you know, where a lot of my students are from, you know, it's, it's a lot harder. And, you know, for them, it, one, you know, takes having really solid experience on your resume early, which is just kind of crazy to think about because we're talking sophomores here and they're expected to have experience at that point. What kind of experience? And, you know, at the same time, you know, they have to do network. They have to network. They what have kind to connect with the people within these firms to actually get an interview. So let's say, Todd, I'm a sophomore and I want to be at a tier one school. Let's say I'm not going to Berkeley or Stanford. Let's say I'm going to, you know, University of Connecticut or here on this coast, uh, uh, San Francisco State. I'm a sophomore, though, and I don't want to be uh, doing data entry or whatever crap like that. I want to have a tier one job that's analytical. Uh, I want to use what I learned in college. I want to get into investment banking. Todd Massage, what's your advice for me? So first thing I tell students to do is, get relevant experience. How? Like the, the number one thing companies look for is relevant experience. And, and there's two ways to do it. One is by literally having an internship in advance, which is basically, you know, this student would have to be pretty much a freshman trying to find internships ahead of their sophomore year because basically like, a lot of these students really need to start getting things going early their sophomore year. So whether it's, you know, doing an internship like that or, you know, doing a program where it basically teaches you how to do what you need to do with these jobs and gives you experience at the same time, which is kind of like what one of our programs does. But at the end of the day, all these big banks expect students to know how to do the job ahead of time. So, you know, it says it's really easy to say get an internship. If I'm a sophomore at San Francisco State University and I say, yeah, I want an internship at, you know, Charles Schwab or at uh, Franklin Templeton or Providian Financial. These are major financial in Wells Fargo, which are all based here. Um, you know, they are these big barriers. I mean, they've got a how do I go about getting an internship? So 
it's it's kind of it's kind of tricky. But the, the number one thing I tell students is you have to make connections. You have to actually connect with people that are in these departments, and you know, build a relationship with them. Oh. And you know, nowadays in the age of technology, that's so overlooked because a lot of these students in schools think they can just submit a bunch of resumes on Indeed or some kind of job website and think they're going to get an interview. But at the end of the day, if you want to break into a really competitive field like investment banking, you one need to know your stuff, but two, you have to be networking with people at all these different banks, whether they're alum or just people you can connect with in general. Build a relationship with them. How are you going you know, to do what you can find. to make them like you? So at the end of the day, they know who you are, and you're not just a piece of paper that they get on a computer. They actually know who you are, and if they like you enough, they'll get you an interview, and then it's up to them to show that they know their stuff. Todd, how am I going to get to somebody who is in a position to create an internship for me at Wells Fargo? You know, it's real, it's, you know, it's, it's real easy to say that, but... You know, is it just using LinkedIn connections, which are wafer thin? Is it going to events that are for the public that they have? What do, what do you, you know, how would you, would you do it through your, how would you go about getting an internship specifically? If Todd Massage was looking for an internship, he's a sophomore at the University of Connecticut, and he's majoring in finance, what does Todd Massage actually do to try to get to network his way into an internship? First thing I would do is go on LinkedIn and see where my alumni are. So I would go on LinkedIn, see where UConn alum are, and find the ones that are at investment banks. Okay. And then what I would do is I'd find their emails and basically send them a short email, pretty much just asking for career advice. Be like, you know, um, hi, my name's Todd Massage. I'm a student at the University of Connecticut um, and interested in pursuing a career in investment banking. Um, you know, I'm really interested to learn more about your background and was hoping you'd have five to ten minutes to chat with me um, just about general career advice in general. You know what? And I would hang up on you. I wouldn't even waste my time. Why? You haven't told you're interested. You haven't told me what you've done to bring to make yourself better than the average sophomore. I would say something like, "I have gotten an A in these two courses. I did this special boot camp. I did this and this, and so I think I'm now ready for an internship." If you just say, "I'm interested," and I'm, you know, that's that's like a hang up. Am I missing? Am I missing something there? Well, there's a couple things you got to think. So, number one, when you're emailing people, you can't get into these long emails because they're not going to read them. Right. If you send them paragraphs and paragraphs talking about how you got A's and this and that, I'm not going to read that. I'm too busy. You know, these bankers are working 80 to 100 hours a week. They don't care about some college kid that's going right. to send them multiple paragraphs. I'm going to click over it. So I always tell students to send something short and sweet and kind of going back to what you said before, maybe put one little personalized line in there about that person or about themselves, and that's it. But when you get too long, a lot of these people don't want to read it, and they don't, they don't deal with it because they don't have time to read it. So short and sweet is better, and then basically you hope you can get them on the phone. And at the same time, I always tell students, if they don't answer you on the first one, try emailing maybe a week later. These people are busy. They're constantly working on different stuff. So you might not get a response in the first time. All right. But at I'm the wa- end of the day, it's also a volume game. You know, you have to reach out to a lot of different people. But if you keep your email short and sweet, you're probably going to get a quick response from the person saying they're willing to chat. And then when you get them on the phone, that's when you can get more into your background. Yeah, I think you've got to, we've got to disagree here. I think you've got to lead with what makes you extraordinary or you're never going to get a call back. In any case, um, you're listening to Work with Marty Nemco. I'm talking with Todd Massage. He knows something about finance and uh, we're now going to tear apart these specific jobs. Now within, you know, I don't, none of my listeners give a crap about number puncher jobs, but let's say these analytical jobs. 
break those down for me. If I again, if, whether I'm a you know a, a kid in college or I'm a career changer, I could be 40 years old and I'm sick of let's say I'm a musician or I'm a you know I'm an activist or whatever, and I say, damn it, I'm sick and tired of living with four roommates and eating ramen and cat food. I want to get a real job. I hear finance is growing, salaries are great. Now, what are the job titles other than analyst that I should be aiming for if I want a tier one job? Sure. So it's, it, I kind of go beyond just the job title of analyst. I kind of look at it more as just the field in general. So like I said before, the big one's investment banking. That's where you're working on the big deals yep. from the mergers and acquisitions to leverage buyouts, IPOs, the whole nine yards. Okay. Then you have things like you know equity research, where you know if let's say you know you're on Yahoo Finance and you see that some analyst at Morgan Stanley put out a research report on Tesla, that's their equity research department. Right. So a lot of students like doing that as well. Then there's also sales and trading, which is pretty self-explanatory, but it's kind of growing a little bit smaller and smaller over time because of all the technology. Right. And then you also have things like asset management, where you go work at, let's say, a Fidelity or a BlackRock, mm-hmm. and you know, you're working with their portfolio managers on their different strategies, and a lot of students love that as well. And then you have some of the other jobs, which I kind of slightly classify a little lower than the ones I just mentioned, which are pretty much stepping stone jobs to get there. You have things like credit, so where you're working at one of the big rating agencies, like a Moody's or an S&P, and you're basically doing work on the credit worthiness of companies' debt and the company overall. Um, there's also things like working at the big four accounting firms, mm-hmm. not in their, their tax and audit departments, but more in their valuation departments or their corporate advisory, where you know, you're kind of doing similar things to what you would do at the big banks, but you know, not just right there yet. And there's also a lot of smaller firms, like a lot of smaller asset management firms out there where, you know, they're doing similar types of stuff. So, you know, there could be, you know, a guy that's managing, let's say, you know, 50 to $100 million, and, you know, they want to bring someone on their team for, let's say, their value-based strategy. Or, you know, you have a lot of, let's say, recent grads coming out of school, these MBAs that, you know, have some money from investors, and, you know, they're looking to buy their first company as kind of like a little small private equity shop. And then another really interesting one, which I try to tell students to go to, is uh, what's called corporate development, which is basically like when you're working for a, you know, let's say Fortune 500 company, and it's pretty much like their in-house M&A arm, where you're helping them basically do work on whether or not they should buy certain companies to grow. So there's a lot of really interesting little paths out there, you know, but a lot of times students just don't even know about them. Exactly. Let's take these, Barbara. I have to make one little comment, nothing to do with what you've said, but I am always shocked. You know, study after study shows that 85% of of stock pickers, all that whole all those people who are involved in equity analysts and and value investing or whatever, they do worse than the unmanaged index funds like a Vanguard index fund. How is it with all the brilliance that's supposedly out there in the world? These companies are still spending zillions of dollars to do all this bottom-up analysis of each individual company when 85% of the time it's just smarter and simpler and a hell of a lot cheaper for the customer as well as for the company to simply take the S&P 500 and simply do that, invest in that unmanaged. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. There was, uh, I think, a bet a couple of years ago where Warren Buffett bet one of these hedge fund guys that the Vanguard index fund would beat the hedge fund guys, what's called a fund of a fund, where basically he picked the best hedge funds to invest in. And, you know, what really kills it there is the fees of a lot right, of these funds. Right, exactly. 
it's crazy. You know, the big hedge funds, they take what's called like 2 and 20, the two, the two performance kind of maintenance fee and then the 20% like profit fee. You know, they, they eat up their gains. So even if they were, let's say, beating the market, the fees eat up the return over time. And that's basically what Warren Buffett was betting against. That's because why he just... knew even the best, like, best funds out there would still underperform the typical index fund just because of those crazy fees. That's why the financial services industry is really pretty disgusting. And, but I, I, I touted this show as talking about the fact that not all finance careers are these, what I consider just wastes, where, you know, like a bond trader, I'm not even just talking about the analyst, a bond trader, you know, doesn't improve anything. You know, the, whoever buys and makes a profit, there's somebody else on the other end who's selling and not making a profit, and then there is the fees on top of it. But are there, you say that there are kinds of careers in finance that actually do benefit society. Can you give me an example of that? Yeah, so, you know, it's it's interesting because, you know, as, as you've seen, you know, the media has been able to pick up on a lot of the crazy stuff that's happened on Wall Street from, you know, what crazy stuff in investment banking back in the 80s, and then you got movies like The Wolf of Wall Street out there that basically show how they're ripping people off. And now a lot of people are, like, picking up on that because it is crazy. It's, it's wild some of the things they do. And what's happening now is a lot of these, you know, kind of smaller funds, basically, like, for example, there's a a small private equity firm based out of Missouri that, you know, pretty much makes their pitch to, you know, these companies that, you know, hey, we're going to buy your company, we're going to let you run it the way you want, and, you know, we're going to be fair here. You know, we're not just going to buy you up and then cut a bunch of people in your company so we can just milk out cash. You know, we're here for the long haul for you, and, you know, we want to make sure, you know, we keep that culture intact that, you know, let's say you built up over the last 30 years or so. And a lot of people who run these companies that are looking to sell are preferring to sell to firms like that where, you know, they're much more aligned versus, you know, a typical private equity firm where, you know, they know the company could completely just get destroyed if they sell to one of these bigger private equity firms that just want to cut costs. Let's, let's, so, let's, let's get to a definition first. What is a private equity firm and how is it different from a venture capitalist and how is it different from a bank? Sure. So a private equity firm is basically a firm slash fund where they raise a bunch of money and essentially what they do is they invest in private companies. Mm -hmm. So when you're thinking like a hedge fund or a typical asset manager, the majority of the time they're investing in public companies like like the stocks you see all the time. The private equity firms are solely focused on private companies where, you know, they basically will acquire the whole thing, and sometimes they will bring in their own people to help run the, the business or help improve it, or they'll just acquire it and let it do its own thing. Now, venture capital is, is pretty darn similar to that. They're also investing in private companies, but that's primarily just a startup. So they're focused on startups that are usually super young, fast-growing, and then they basically invest in these companies and take big bets that they're going to be the next Uber or, you know, one of the next Lyft or whatever it is, and just hope for that big 10x return. And now the banks, you know, the banks have tons of different departments in it. You know, if we're talking something like, you know, a J.P. Morgan, you know, they have their own asset management arm. They have their own investment bank. They even have a retail side to them through Chase. So the big banks basically do everything. But, you know, when you're talking private equity, venture capital, there's usually some sort of specific strategy behind it. What I understand is that in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, 
both the venture capitalists and the, especially the private equity firms were vultures. Uh, they, they weren't venture capital funds, they were vulture funds. They would go, they would take these businesses that were desperate, give them 10 or 20 cents in a dollar, and then fire almost everybody, just make the balance sheet look good in the short run, sell the business, make a big profit, and, just, and leaving, the, leaving all the, the workers uh, um, bereft. Now, as I understand, because that has been made so uh, public, that some of the more progressive uh, private equity firms and even venture capital firms are being much fairer. And as you said earlier, they may, instead of cleaning out the joint, basically leaving the firm intact and bringing in a couple of consultants to help them be a little better. Is that an accurate statement, what I'm saying here? Yeah, so it's, it's, it's twofold. So one kind of what you're referring to before is more of like a specific strategy, which is called like vulture investing, right. where you see these big firms come in with these companies that are having issues, they buy a bunch of the debt, and then if they go into bankruptcy, they own all the new stock of the company. So if you are following what's going on with you know Pacific Gas out in California, it's kind of the same kind of thing right now, where you had all these big hedge funds come in and buy this company's debt to hope to profit from the bankruptcy, depending on what happens. But nowadays, like you said, things are a lot different. People are picking up on this and they know it's 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 not right. So, you know, what a lot of these firms are trying to do now is, you know, find different ways to basically beat the market. So, you know, kind of going back to the private equity angle before, some of these private equity firms will essentially, you know, buy companies nowadays and then they'll actually help them improve the business. Right. So whether it's, you know, buying a company and helping them overhaul their marketing or, you know, helping them, you know, not cut costs, but be more efficient. So that way, you know, one, you know, they'll, they'll benefit from buying the company, but two, they'll benefit by actually helping the company out so they can make more money in the long run. So uh, let's, let's be quite specific here. Let's go back to the career focus. This show is about careers. So if I'm listening, this is the first thing. If I'm a listener and I or somebody I love uh, is interested in a career in finance, that's what I want to do. I want to work for a private equity firm that is ethical and not just trying to make money, but trying to perhaps buy companies and assist them in bringing a better quality product or service to more people. That's what I want to do. What advice do you have for me if that's my non-negotiable? That's what I want. Yeah, so there's, so there's two things. The one kind of conventional route is what you basically have to do is you go do investment banking for, let's say, you know, a year, you know, maybe two years out of school. And then once you basically have that stamp on your resume and you've done it, it makes it 10 times more easier to get into basically what I call the buy side, which are those hedge funds, those private equity firms, the venture capital firms, because a lot of them like to see that investment banking experience. Buy side means you're buying businesses, you're buying stocks. Yes, exactly. You're buying something, right? right? Mm -hmm. So that's basically been the conventional route for a very long time. You go into investment banking, you do that for a little bit, then basically you have a golden ticket to go to one of those buy-side type firms. So that's one way to get into a really good private equity firm. Another way, which, which students do nowadays, is, you know, they, they kind of take whatever job they want out of college. You know, they maybe do it for three to five years, and then they apply to, let's say, a, a top 10 MBA program. And if you can get into, you know, a top 10, top 15 MBA program, it's a lot easier to get into one of those buy-side firms because, again, you know, a lot of these big MBA programs, the best part about them is the networking opportunities, and that's how you get in. But, you know, if you're a student out of school and you are just dead set on certain types of private equity firms, 
what I tell students is, okay, why not reach out to them? Reach out to people in the company, get them on the phone, have good conversations. Because, you know, one, if, if they're, you're able to get them on the phone, you're able to kind of show them who you are and how you're really passionate about that type of stuff, they could create a job for you and bring you on board. You know, and, you know, for students that are basically worried about, you know, people not getting on the phone with them, one thing I tell them to do, which works really well, is go old school. Send them letters, you know, take the time to write them a good letter that, you know, again, kind of gets into your background, how you're very passionate about the area, and maybe, you know, FedEx it to them. Because when you FedEx something, people always open it up. And if you took the time to do something like that, I guarantee you your response rate is going to be a lot better when you're talking a lot of these more specific type of firms. And it just shows the effort you put in and that you're really passionate about it as well. What I need, you've used the word passion 18 times and it makes me vomit because there's (laughs) a lot of people who are passionate and don't know crap. So really what I've found far more value, yes, you need to have, even there are a hell of a lot of successful people who are not gung-ho, super passionate people. They are thorough, they're smart, they're reflective, and they're ethical. And sometimes, if you're not going to be Mr. Cheerleader type, sometimes it's more important than showing all that passion would be to send a portfolio of what you have done, your work products that you did in school, what you've learned, the boot camps you attended. That's going to mean a whole lot more than, you know, talk is cheap. I mean, I could make up that I care about Indo-European medieval linguistics, and I can sound really excited about it. I really want to learn more about it, but it doesn't mean crap. What's, you no. know, that's, that's sizzle. What counts as steak? Do you disagree with that? No, it's, uh, it's basically what I was going to get into next. So, you know, one thing I tell students to do when they do send those letters is mention that you can send the firms things they've done. So, for example, if you're trying to work for a, you know, value-based Warren Buffett-style type of fund, and that's what you want to do, send them a report you wrote up on a company. Show them that you know how to do that type of analysis. Mm-hmm. And I guarantee if you send them a couple things of your work, yep. they're going to be like, okay, you know, this guy or girl knows their stuff, and that's going to dramatically help your chances of you know actually getting an interview. Agree. All right. Um, before we get to my last last little question, I want to add, give you a. I guess I'll end with this with a softball. Is there one more thing that you want to tell our listeners about careers in finance that is important for them to know that you haven't already said? Know what you're getting into. So the biggest thing about a lot of these careers in finance, you know, especially when you're talking, you know, New York City, Wall Street type jobs, is you are going to work crazy hours. So if you're at a top investment bank, you're probably going to be working from seven till two o'clock in the morning, and you'll probably be back in the next day around seven or eight, wow. and that's all the time. And if you're in really, really busy season and you got a lot of deals going on. You could be working 100, 120 hours a week. And it sounds crazy, but that's what happens. So, you know, if that's something you want to do, just know what you're getting into. Because if you're someone that would prefer to have a lifestyle and, you know, want that kind of work-life balance, that might not be the career for you. Because a lot of them expect a lot of work, a lot of hours, and obviously you'll get paid for it, but it's going to take up a lot of your life. Then, dude, you better get yourself to bed. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, if people want more from you, uh, you have a website or a, a thing that you want to tout, what do you want to tout? 
Yeah, so, um, you know, for, for students kind of looking to, you know, get into these types of, you know, solid Tier 1 type uh, finance jobs, uh, you can head over to our website, tier1wallstreet.com, where we put up a lot of free resources up there for students from, you know, the types of jobs to interview tips to networking tips, et cetera. And, you know, we also have a program called the Invest Like History Analyst Program where we essentially, you know, take students, teach them what they need to know for a lot of these jobs, and give them experience doing this type of work. So that way they can have something on their resume to show employers that, hey, you know, I know what to do for these jobs. You know, I've done this type of work. And it's made a big difference for students, you know, coming from that, you know, that non-target or that UConn that need just that little extra edge to stand out amongst, you know, all these Ivy League kids applying for the same jobs. The uh, website again is Tier One Wall Street. Tier the number one and the the written out word Wall Street or ST. Yep. Tier One Wall Street dot com. With you the got word it. Street S T R E E T or S just S T. S T R E E T. Okay, very good. All right, Todd Massage, get to bed. Yep. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Marty. <laughs> take, take care. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Now we turn to you, my dear listeners. Whether you're interested in finance or this completely made you puke, <laughs> you'd like some career advice of any sort, uh, we do, we, not we, I, then in this world, we is necessary. I do what are called workovers here on, on KALW. Um, and so if you are, you or someone you love is stuck with any kind of career problem, frankly, the harder the better, uh, I invite you to call now while lines are available. Um, I'll do my best to help. The price is certainly right. Zero. Um, the phone number, 415-841-4134. That's the phone number. If you've got a work problem of any sort, I'll do my best to help. 415-841-4134. I need to provide a little balance to that very bad news. 100 hours a week, 120 hours a week, you know, etc. Um, there was a new poll that found that... Um, the conference board, which has been around for over 100 years, they found that um, Americans now are feeling better as we're heading into Labor Day about their jobs than they have in years. The conference board survey shows that about 54% of U.S. workers are now satisfied with their employment. Satisfaction climbed by almost 3% from the prior year, which marks a near record increase in the survey's history. Workers also report being much more at ease about their job security. Wage satisfaction is surging among millennials. Satisfaction regarding wages rose a staggering 9.8% among those 80, 35 and under, and workers in their peak earning years between 33 and 54 remain most satisfied. But, it's got to be unfair, there is some dissatisfaction. Um, many employees are unhappy with their current job's potential for future growth. And that probably reflects the reality that employers are just using workers as fungible work units to be plugged in and plugged out rather than developing them. And over 60% feel dissatisfied with their organization's recognition practices, their performance review process, and their communication channels. So, um, and there was a quote from the author of the report and the conference board's chief economist for North America, quote, in today's strong jobs market, people are quitting their current positions at the fastest pace in over two decades, end quote. Oh, then the quote continues. It's one of the many signs that illustrate improved opportunities for workers. They now have more leverage when it comes to increasing their paychecks and finding jobs that better align with their interests and skills. Glad to have passed on that news. Our lines are filling up here, so let me go right to the phones. Welcome to Work with Marty Nemco. It's your turn on the air. How can I help you? Hi, it's you. Hi. Hello. Yes. yes, 
Hi. Uh, thank you for taking my call. My pleasure. My daughter is an incoming freshman, and she's going. You know, to you're distorting school. a little bit. Are you maybe you could pull back your 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 mouth a little bit from the receiver because you're very much distorting. Oh, okay. Let me. Turn or something. Okay. Yeah, do that, and uh, you know, yeah. Uh, okay, hold on. Um, is this better now? Only a little. Okay. Oh, okay. okay. Do the uh, then be concise so we can at least I can at least help you and then kick you off the <laughs> off the phone. Okay. Oh sure. She's 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 considering a marketing major and I'm just wondering how promising that you know a couple of years down the line. Right. I'm very sad about this, but I have to say it's very promising. Marketing is oh. one of the very fastest growing fields. You know, marketing again is about sizzle, not steak. I hate it. That there's all this uh-huh. emphasis on getting people, you know, how to manipulate people into buying stuff, you know. But in terms, you asked me in terms of your question, is it promising? Alas, it is promising. Okay. There you go. So, thank you. All right, you're thank welcome. You. Bye. Get a get a better phone connection. <laughs> Let's go back to the phones. Welcome to work with Marty Nemco. It's your turn on the air. How can I help you? Hi. Yes, I would like to know about. Um, what the gunsmithing industry is looking like in California. Oh, my God. And- <laughs> gunsmithing, there's only, as far as I know, there's only about one or two people who make a good living in gunsmithing. And, of course, with all the tremendous move toward more gun control, it's hard to imagine that, you know, of course there are these few hobbyists who have these antique, you know, derringers and antique uh, um, rifles or whatever, and they, you know, they want them uh, uh, custom-made or custom reboard or whatever. But I can't say that moving forward there's going to be a growth in, you know, I, I remember I had a client who was interested in that a couple of years ago, and we did some research, and there was like two people in California who were making a solid They were the go-to guys in this field. Um, I'm not convinced. Why do you ask? Okay. Oh, because uh, my son is interested in this field. It's hobby. Just, uh, hobby. Yeah. Great. Hobby. Hobby. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I got to be blunt and direct, and I am being, and not to mention, yeah, I mean, as a hobby, it's fine if it's an antique item. I mean, I'm not a big gun fan. But anyway, <laughs> thanks a lot for calling work with Marty Namco. Thank you. I'll give out the phone number again. If you've got a work-related problem, uh, gun-related or preferably not, uh, uh, whether you're 16 or 76, whether you're well-employed or not employed at all, self-employed, I love playing Shark Tank here because I'm not quite as mean usually. So if you, you're running a business and you want to run whether I think it's a good idea or how I could improve it or you're thinking about an idea, one thing you can, you can see, you're going to get a straight shot from me. You may or may not agree with me, but it, you will not get lying or... Uh, sugar coating, you will normally get the my best shot. The phone number here, work with Marty Nemco, 415-841-4134. That's 415-841-4134. Back to the phones. It's your turn on the air. How can I help you? Hi there. Um, I have two kids back from college. Yep. So no more empty nests. And my goal is to get them well-employed and out of the nest again. Off your sofa. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Um, Tell me about so, one of them. Uh, Tell me about the one that's the hardest problem. Yeah, that's why I'm calling. Good. So he just does not know what he wants to do. Right. Um, and just has a hard time coming up with ideas. And when I, I remember when I was 20, I'm 60 years old. When I was 20 years old, the guy I knew who enjoyed his, mo- his job the most was splicing fiber optic cable huh. when it was brand new. Right. And he and his crew from South Florida we're making a fortune here in the Bay Area doing that for a while. But that's the kind of job that nobody talks about, right? Like if you look right. at the, 
you know, top 15 careers, it, you know, be a physician's assistant, be a right. this, that, coder. But things like that, that are, you know, are totally kind of out in left field, but valid. Right. Hard, now, you know, question. Unless you know about it, you don't know about right. it. Right. Now, is your kid there? Why, can you want to put him on the phone? No, he's not here right he's now. not there. Okay, he tell me a couple of, you. great, tell me a couple <laughs> of clues about him. So, uh, he, uh, he likes to work with his hands. Yeah. He's pretty smart. Um, he's just never. I always thought he would be a great engineer, mm-hmm. but truth be told, I think he partied too much in college. Mm-hmm. You know, he got off that track. Right. Uh, he was thinking about the electricians' union, mm-hmm. and I think that's a great plan Me for too. him because um, he's a hard worker. When he gets on track, great. he does. You know, he became the assistant manager of the Jamba Juice when he had his first okay. job after like six weeks or okay. whatever. Okay. Um, but I was wondering, I, years ago I was in the library in the reference section, and I just happened to pull down a book which was like just a list of like thousands and thousands of jobs mm-hmm. by kind of their, jo- their descriptive job title. Right. And I thought that was so interesting just to look through that. That's where you see something like fiber optic splicer, and you go, huh, what's that? You know, and you can look in, and it had like I think the average salary or something. Do you know anything about well, the modern-day equivalent of that kind of thing for a hands-on guy who's attracted to electrical is going to be robotics. Some, you know, ever more because, uh, unfortunately, employers are ever more scared of hiring workers because of the mandated benefits, the fear of lawsuits, unreliability, the, you know, people coming in high with now legalized recreational marijuana, the whole deal. So they're automating as fast as they possibly can, everything from baristas at Starbucks to fast food, you know, uh, burger flipping, uh, and, of course, med- uh, surgery. I had a friend who had surgery. It was done remotely with what's called Da Vinci, which is a robotic surgery arm. So if I were somebody looking at, uh, in the year 2020, for a hands-on electrical career that's under the radar, unlike in 1968 when the movie The Graduate, when the guy said, plastics, um, <laughs> yeah, I would be saying robotics and medical equipment uh, technician. Uh, I think that's where the future is. I also think that in the medical space, uh, so much of medical testing, because we're going to move in, nobody's got a crystal ball, but I believe we're going to have something like single payer soon with a lot of non-payers, so cost control is going to be enormous. So ever more of the diagnostic tests are not going to be big invasive procedures, but blood tests and urine tests and, and skin biopsies and things like that. And so... And that's going to be that's ever more automated. So being an expert at the equipment that's doing medical lab tests, that's doing robotics, that's doing major, ma- and, and yes, major um, like medical, um, um, what do you call it, imaging things like MRI machines and next generation PET scans. I think that's where the smart money is rather than going a straight electrician. Although union, you know, from the employee standpoint, unions are the best because they do provide right. a lot of power in terms of getting a good deal, job protection. So that's got to be balanced. I don't think these these kind of cutting-edge electrical fields that I've just described are going to be unionized. So you have to weigh the advantage of the union gig versus having this kind of on-the-ground-floor, ahead-of-the-curve uh, kind of electric work. Does that make sense? Yeah, those are great ideas. I knew you have some great ideas that I had never thought of before. There you go. Um, how do you? Where does one go to get like training in robotics or medical equipment technician? There's you, you yeah, There's a number of ways to do it, and my favorite way is not through the universities or the, even the community colleges or the trade schools. The manufacturers huh. of those products often do they have in-house trainings. 
and uh-huh. I would try to get to do because they like that because then you're trained on their equipment so you're a real specialist and you have a certain obligation to them you know both psychologically and because you're really not that marketable outside because if you're General Electric General Electric for example makes MRI machines and so uh-huh. does Philips but if GE trains you you know you know how to repair and install GE MRIs not Philips so it's in the company's interest to train you I also think that Kaiser Permanente in the healthcare space is doing a lot of in-house training for the same reason. So those are my thoughts. Oh, fantastic. Thank you so much. You're welcome. All right. I want to be fantastic for you. So if you've got a work-related problem of any sort, as I say, you know, I don't know if it's nice for me to say this or not, but really the harder the better. You know, I've been doing this a long time, and I feel like after all these years, I've learned a lot. And so I want to be able to help people with really hard problems. And it's also more fun for my listeners. So if you've got a hard career problem or somebody you know, a family member, a friend, whatever, has got a hard career problem, I'd love to hear from you. The phone number, 415-841-4134. That's the number here at Work With Marty Nemco and KELW Radio, 415-841-4134. Kind of uh, dovetailing off of the uh, my previous guest, uh, Payscale, uh, which has a huge database of salary information, um, has just issued its college salary report. Um, and what their major findings were, let me get to this. Okay, so this is going to be really good news for people who are STEMs, you know, science, technology, engineering, and math, and bad news for people like me who are soft skill types. The mean, mid-career median pay for by bachelor's degree in 2019, number one at $175,000 a year average, petroleum engineer. Number two, electrical engineer in computer science, 142000 At 140000 applied economics and management. That's very quantitative. Operations research, 137000 Political economist, 136,000. Actuarial mathematics, 135,000. Electrical power engineering, 135,000. Business analysis, 133,000. Pharmacist, 133,000. Astronautics, you know, manned and unmanned spacecraft, satellites, 132,000. So, um, you know, I love art. I love music. I love literature. I love debating philosophy. I love ethics discussions. But it looks like we are getting ever more tech-centric. So we either have to maybe embrace that or decide, screw it, I'm going to live with the four roommates and be my soft-skilled person. Because not everybody is meant to be, you know, a STEM person. You know, I can't fix anything. I'm not, you know, that previous caller was, his kid was hands-on. I'm (laughs) hands-off. Anyway, let's go to the phones. Welcome to Work with Marty Nemco. It's your turn on the air. How can I help you? Hello, it's you. Hi, this is Michelle. Hi, Michelle. I wanted to share with you and with your previous caller a school called 42. Okay. And it's in Fremont, California. Okay. Founded by French tech billionaire Xavier Neal. Okay. And the school offers high-level instruction in computer science, engineering, and robotics. It's project-based. Um... There are no instructors, and you you peer review each other's work. Huh. So that's very different you than say you did. Yeah. And the best news the best news is it's free. And it's called Forty Two. 
42 after The Secret of the Universe in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Oh, I see. Oh, right. I remember that. That's right. What is the secret of the universe? 42. Um, that's a great parody book. Um, so, and, and to find it, is the website just 42.com? Um, yes. And, you know, because, because the, the, um, the website for the U.S. campus was translated from French, you're going to have to do a Google search for it. Um, and it may be one or two pages in in the Google search. Okay, so f- just Google search 42 and robotics training, peer instruction, and you'll find it. Yes, you should You should definitely find it. It's a free school. It has great reviews. My son, wow. it saved his life. He wow. loved it. Wow. Well, you are an honored member of the Work with Marty Nemco workforce. I, Michelle, I thank you very much for calling the show. Thank you. Take care. Bye. I'll give out the phone number again if you've got a work-related problem. Um, phone number here, work with Marty Nemco, 415-841-4134. That's 415-841-4134. The fall semester is starting, um, and I just finished teaching a course in career counseling at Golden Gate University, and at the beginning, I gave them a three-minute mini-lecture on how to make the most of a course, my course, uh, but it was applicable more broadly. So now, as we're entering the fall term, whether it's you who are in college or you who are in graduate school or someone you care about, maybe this three-minute mini-lecture will be of value, and then I'll go back to the phones. First, about reading assignments. This may feel odious, but it really does help to do the assigned readings in advance of the class session. You're going to get more from the class. You're going to make more thoughtful comments or ask smarter questions. You're going to be better at answering the instructor queries. And if you don't care about the learning, it's going to improve your grade because usually class participation either officially or unofficially matters. And remember that more important than the grade really is the learning that's going to enhance your professional life or your personal life. So please, do the assigned reading in advance. Frankly, that was very core to my doing well in my doctoral work at Berkeley. I was terrified of the statistics courses. So when I came from New York to California to start school... I bought the statistics textbook early, a month early, and I went to Crown Beach in Alameda every day, and I would spend an hour studying a chapter of that book, and that really helped. Okay, next, class participation. You know, it's wrong to say there are no stupid questions. There are stupid questions. Anybody who says it's not is dishonest. But most questions aren't stupid, or most comments aren't stupid. But if you fear yours is a clunker, all right, try it on a smart classmate. But more often... Your questions and comments are worthy and are going to benefit both you and your classmates. Now, that said, I want you to use this rule of thumb. Speak up no more than slightly above your proportionate share. So if the class has, say, 20 students, your proportionate share would be 5% of the class time that students are commenting and questioning. And maybe 10% would be your max. Now I want to turn down, turn to note-taking. Don't write too much or too little. It's a Goldilocks thing. If you already know something, don't write it, even if the professor thinks it's important. If it's some detail that won't be important to you after the course is over and probably won't be on the test, don't write it. Write only what you don't know and is likely to be on the test or, more important, as I've said, is something you want to remember long after the course is over so you can keep your notes afterwards and draw on it. I begged my students. I had them keep uh, their notes and also a journal. And I said, I don't want voluminousness. I want you to write something you don't want to keep on your desk for a long time. Next, 
contacting the professor outside of class. Asking questions of the professor during the office hours or by email is a way to get individualized instruction and maybe even improve your grade. Because I, I like so all professors like students who care enough to ask questions. Now I want to talk about major assignments for a minute. If you think the assigned term paper or project is not going to benefit you enough, and especially if you can think of an assignment that's more likely to bring you valuable, enduring learning, do ask the professor. Most professors, including me, really care a lot about helping students make the most of their class. And the same is true of fieldwork and internships. Often those fieldworks and internships, they can yield especially valuable learning and enduring learning that you don't forget two weeks after the final. And if the first time you have at a given fieldwork placement or an internship suggests that you might, you know, not, might not benefit you a whole lot, you might want to meet with the professor or the supervisor to tweak that. But if you feel it's hopeless, it is absolutely fine to ask the professor for a different placement. I'm going to be really honest and a little disclosing here. I have taken a lot of courses for undergraduate and graduate, and I frankly grew too little from too many of them. I was just too damn focused on the grade and too little on the important learning, not the trivial learning, but the important learning. But with the benefit of the perspective that's come from now the decades since my years as a student, I hope that this little three-minute mini-lecture is going to help you or someone you love derive more from your courses. All right, phone number again if you've got a work-related problem. I do these workovers here at KALW. I want to do one for you. Price is certainly right. Zero. Harder problem, the better. Phone number, 415-841-4134. That's 415-841-4134. Now back to the phones. Welcome to Work with Marty Nemco. Thanks for your patience. It's now your turn on the air. How can I help you? Hi. Are you there? Hi. Hi. Is that me? Am I on the air? Yes, you are. Great. Hi, my name. My name is Dan. Hi, Dan. I've been a, I'm a chiropractor of 30, 33 mm. years, uh-huh. and uh, I have a friend who's thinking about becoming a chiropractor, mm. going through the training and all, which I strongly support. Mm. But when I when I look at the field from a, a financial position mm-hmm. compared to other other um, professionals in in the medical field, mm-hmm. I wonder if we're really keeping up. I don't. I don't. I don't think we are. I don't see the reimbursement changing much since the eighties. Yep. Uh, for chiropractic services with with insurance, and I wanted to get your comments on uh, where chiropractic fits in with the medical model and uh, and reimbursement and that sort of thing. Yeah, I agree. It's always been kind of, as they say, the weak sister. And there, and there was this website that had profound negative impact on the, psych, uh, the uh, I think it was called Quack Watch, that just was devastating to the chiropractic profession, and uh, and it was cited uh, as well as others in Consumer Reports, uh, as and the the unbiased compliment went like UCSF has a complementary medicine um, uh, division that does research, and they found that uh, uh, subluxa- subluxations and uh, other kind of manipulations that the uh, chiropractors do were no more effective for its core business, that core uh, disease that is lower back pain, than standard allopathic medicine. So. It, you know, I agree that I think that the future of chiropractic is not very bright, especially because, as you well know, training at Life or whatever the name of those those private schools is damn expensive, and therefore you've got to charge a lot. And whereas the healthcare system is moving far more to having more care provided by assistance, physical therapy assistance, physician assistance, nurse practitioners, which because their training is less expensive, they are less expensive to hire. So I am not optimistic about chiropractic. Does that make sense? 
Unfortunately, yes, it does. Okay. Uh-huh. Thanks for calling work with Marty Emko. Okay. You know, uh, I am, Thanks. but again, I never like to, to, I try where possible to propose something more positive. So in light of what I said, the person who would be thinking of going into chiropractic might be wiser to become a physical therapy assistant or even start as a physical therapy aide and then perhaps work their way up. And once you're a physical therapy assistant and you're, let's say, in demand, say, at, and there's no, in my mind, Kaiser Permanente is going to be the big winner in healthcare reform. It's going to be the, the closest analog to single payer. And so if you are a physical therapy aide or a physical therapy assistant at Kaiser, they may well subsidize partly or completely going to be a full physical therapist later. And now you're, you're following the wave rather than fighting the wave. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Okay. Yeah. Thanks a lot for calling. Okay. Hey, thank you. Yep. I have time for one more call. So if you have a work-related problem of any sort, we, we cover the full waterfront here from hands-on robotic repair to chiropractic. Uh, the phone number here, work with Marty Nemco and KLW, 415-841-4134. That's 415-841-4134. Um, I want to just take another a couple of minutes now to talk about something that's uh, very critical to our growth as a, as in any career, and that is feedback. It's hard to find the courage to solicit, to curate, and act on feedback without defensiveness, but it's critical. We do tend to even defend our indefensibles. We may globalize a criticism from the specific, I'm, you know, to I'm a loser. And even if we're rational about the way we react to feedback, it feels a heck of a lot better to be praised than criticized. And yet, as you know, feedback course is key to our growth. So if we care to improve ourselves, we've got to gird ourselves to endure the short-term pain of risking reaming for the long-term gain in our professional and personal efficacy. At our best, we seek out feedback from respected bosses, coworkers, supervisees, and people in our personal lives. There is an app which I really love, SurveyMonkey. It has a free version that allows you to get anonymous answers to up to 10 multiple-choice uh, questions or open-ended questions. You make up your own questions or you can use SurveyMonkey suggestions. It's great. Great way to get feedback. But sometimes it's wiser to ask a person directly. And if you word it properly, it can be impressive that you're open to growing, even if it means risking painful criticism. I have a lot more to say about feedback, but I, I like to prioritize you. We have callers on the line, so let's go to the phones. Welcome to work with Marty Nemco. It's your turn on the air. How can I help you? Yeah, hi. Um, I want to hear you comment about retirement. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think this is kind of an antiquated idea that when we get older, we should be moving aside. I'm about to retire from 20 years at working for NASA, mm-hmm. and I don't see myself as sort of going out to pasture, right. but rather starting a new career at right. this stage in my life. Right. And I'd like to hear your, your recommendations about how best to do this, um, particularly because I'd like to work in something that has more of a legacy than just making money. I Great. really have plenty of money. I'm looking for a legacy project. Right. And I work at the Food, Water, Energy Nexus. But anyway, I, I won't go into what I'm doing, but I'd like to hear about your attitude about this and how, how you think it's best to make the network needed to make this actually work. Okay. So, of course, it's absurd. I mean, it's as bad as racism or sexism. It's just because you reach a certain age that you are suddenly unworthy. It's crazy. Uh, you know, there are people who are 50 who are half dead and people who are 80 who are still, at, you know, fully functioning. So, you know, it's just an arbitrary, horrible thing to try to push people out. It, you know, just like I, I don't want anybody's career dis- hiring decision to be based on one's race or, or gender or sexual orientation. It shouldn't be about age. It should be about merit. 
plain and simple. But um, with regard to you, now, do you, there, most people, when they're looking for a legacy prize, which is a fabulous thing to do, do one of the following things. They either mentor young people, they write a memoir, or they write a book or articles or blog posts or videos that crystallize what they know as well as propose a vision for the future. Do any of those feel like what you want to do? Yes, in fact, they do. I've thought about all of those. I'm, I've actually taught. I'm an prof- adjunct professor mm-hmm. at the university. Mm-hmm. But because of what I learned when I was working at the Office of Science, Technology, and Policy during the Obama administration, mm-hmm. And the problems that are facing the younger generation in terms of food and water right. and energy. Right. I wanted to try to start a global project, in fact, on something that would help the next generation stabilize their their food and actually build a real project. My problem has been finding investors that would share my vision for how I would like to do okay. this. this my, my intuition is, given that we only have a minute left, is that you're trying to be a little too ambitious. I would try to... Look, we are in the era of alternative meats. Uh, Impossible Foods and their competitors are racing to try to create a better alternative to meat because of the water problem. They use 10 times as much water to create a X amount of protein in making meat as it is to make a plant-based uh, uh, meat. And the taste is damn good. You know, the biggest problem with it right now is, calor- is calories. They don't like to talk about it. But did you know that a, an ounce of uh, impossible meat, that plant-based meat, is twice as caloric as a piece of beef? So that's just one of many things. But I would encourage you to do, rather than try to do this all yourself and get investors, you as a retired NASA guy, to, to hook up with an entity that is in this very hot space, even on, on a part-time consulting basis, maybe logging your learning or whatever on a blog or whatever, uh, I think it's too much to do it alone. Maybe later on after you've fully immersed yourself in this space at one of these cutting-edge companies, then you may be in a position to do something on your own. But I think right now you would have a hard time getting investors. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Let me just tell you one last thing, and that is, but what I'm planning to do is I'm calling a mission to Mars, where Mars is an acronym for Mobilize All Resources for Sustainability. Don't like it. I'll and tell you what I mean. You're talking about Sizzle. The brand, the name, the acronym is all cute. That doesn't get investments. That's Sizzle. It's a theme that's been on the show now a few times with various calls. Focus on the stake. Focus on what you bring to the table that could be an augmentation to what is being done in regards to creating alternative meats and sell that, not the acronym. And with that, I must say goodbye because the show is over. Thank you so much. You're you're very welcome. And that is Work with Marty Nemco for this week. I want to thank my board operator, Joanne Marr, and of course, all of you for calling in, filling these lines. It's it's an honor that you all want to call. That's terrific. Please join me again next Thursday at 7. You can call in for a workover plus... Ideas for counselors, ideas for teachers, and ideas for creatives who want to change career. Until then, this is Marty Nemco reminding you that we find comfort among those who agree with us, growth among those who don't. (laughs) 